The gospel is and must always remain the primary message of the church. The gospel is the message we must explicitly proclaim and the message people must intentionally receive through repentance and faith. One of the the greatest dangers to the church and to the, the souls of man, I guess you could say, is drifting away from the gospel. And and I use the word drifting because there's not in a in a person who has genuinely committed their life to Christ or in a solid Bible believing, gospel preaching church, there aren't much chance, there isn't much of a chance of them making large decisive steps away from Jesus. Rather there is a much more danger of there being slow but consistent progression away. And that's what drifting is. Drifting isn't the giant leaps. It's not you wake up one day and you no longer believe in Jesus. It is a a slow but steady progression. And I'm convinced people don't make giant leaps away from Jesus. They, They do not make the giant steps. Instead... They make the small, incremental progression that goes on and on and on. And I think it's the same with churches. I mean, we, we see in the news, once conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches and denominations are, are splitting and falling apart over issues that are clearly gospel issues. These things did not happen overnight. It wasn't just... One day they were faithfully proclaiming the gospel and then the next they were wondering if sin was actually a problem. It was small but consistent progression that was never stopped, that was never slowed down. A little compromise here, a little change there, a little letting go of something here and suddenly they're very, very far away from Jesus. And at that point, what this church, what the, the people are believing, what they are proclaiming, it isn't really the gospel any longer. Right? We have, to, we have to explicitly proclaim the gospel. People then must receive the gospel. And then we all must stand in the gospel. Stand and not drift. We're going to look at what that means tonight. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 1 through 11 are what I'm going to read, but we're primarily going to look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word when you find that. Scripture says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which you have received, and wherein you stand, by which you are also saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And when He was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, and after that He was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that He was seen of James and of all the apostles, and last of all He was seen also of me, one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
and his grace which and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain but i labored more abundantly than they all yet not i but the grace of god which was given me therefore whether it were i or they so we preach and so ye believed the title of the message tonight is standing in the gospel let's pray Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, our desire tonight, it is to grow in our knowledge of the gospel, our understanding of it. Father, we want to be faithful in standing in the gospel. We do not want to compromise in what we preach. We do not want to compromise in what we teach. We do not want to drift in what we believe. So let your Holy Spirit tonight come and take this word, apply it deep in our hearts to strengthen us, to encourage us, to make us a gospel-centered people, give us opportunities to tell others the good news about Jesus Christ and let them receive the gospel and be saved. Fill me tonight with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Use this time, Father, we surrender it to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> now, in verses 1 and 2, notice the progression of the gospel as it came to the Corinthians. First, Paul went there and he preached the gospel to them. He proclaimed it as we have talked about in weeks past. When Paul was there, he was determined to know nothing among them save Christ and Him crucified. They then received the gospel. Right? After Paul preached the gospel to them, they then intentionally responded and received the gospel by repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus. Paul says they were also, in verse 2, they were saved in the gospel. Now, interesting. The word saved here in the King James, and I think every translation says that, is a... Uh, it's in the continuing tense in the Greek. So I think some translations may actually say by which you are being saved, which is what it could be taken to mean. Now, that's interesting and that's important because Scripture talks about salvation in, in three tenses or three stages. Right? There is the past, the present, and the future tense. In the past, there was justification. Right? Justification is that moment in time when we repented of our sins, we believed in Jesus Christ, and God declared us not guilty for our sins. In the present, there is sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process of our becoming like Jesus. So it is God working in our life, pulling up the, the junk and the dross that's there, showing it to us. We repent of it, it's taken away, and we become a little more like Jesus, this is an ongoing process, begins on the day we're saved, continues for the rest of our lives. Then there is glorification, that is a future tense, that is the, the time when Jesus will return or He takes us home and we will be fully and finally delivered from the power and the presence of sin. This is that last and final time when the salvation is fully complete and we are changed for, for eternity at that point. Now, the gospel is necessary for every stage of our salvation. Right? The gospel is necessary for our justification. The gospel is necessary for our sanctification. And the gospel is necessary, our faith in the gospel, necessary for our glorification. As Paul says, the gospel which he delivered, first of all, it is of primary importance. Right? It is not a secondary issue. And then he says that they were also standing in the gospel at the end of verse 1. Wherein ye stand. Now the idea is they were firmly adhering to the gospel. Now we know there were issues in the church at Corinth. There were moral issues. There were church issues. 
And there was creeping bad doctrinal issues that was coming in. Despite all of that, they, they still had not yet drifted from the gospel. They were still adhering. They were still standing in the gospel. Now, they were standing in the gospel. They were saved in the gospel. But notice what else he says in verse 2. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you. So they're, they're saved by the gospel if they keep in memory what he had preached to them. In other words, they were saved and would continue to be saved so long as they believed the gospel. If they believed the gospel until the end, they would be saved until the end. What he's telling them is this false philosophy, this bad doctrine that is creeping in and influencing some in the church, it would have eternally destructive consequences if they receive it. Right? He wants them to know no one can expect to be genuinely saved, can expect to call heaven their home if they do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They cannot reject it, they cannot alter it, they cannot deny it, and still call themselves Christians. They are not saved. They must continue to believe the gospel to the end. Now this is, that idea of continuing to the end is seen all throughout Scripture. Jesus said, he that, he that perseveres or endures to the end, the same shall be, what? Saved. Right? So the idea, it's not, salvation is not a, a decision that was made at one point in the past. Our belief in Jesus, our belief in the gospel is not something that happened way back here, but now up here it doesn't matter. No. We must believe always. And what Paul says at the end of verse 2, unless you have believed in vain, it's interesting. And, and it's really important. There are different ideas about what it means unless you have believed in vain. There are two main ideas with it. The first follows the NIV's translation, which says, otherwise you have believed in vain. And the, the idea with that one is, if they believed that the gospel at some point in the past, and then at some point in the future, they stopped believing the gospel, their initial faith and the time they lived in faith was a waste of time. Because in the end, they go to hell anyway. Because they died without believing the gospel. The other idea is believing something vain or something worthless. In other words, they could start out believing the gospel and then begin to believe a lie. Something vain, something worthless. And this lie will pull them away from the gospel. And the point really with both of them, I guess, is what we believe matters. Faith has no value if it's not placed in the right object. Faith in and of itself is worthless unless it is placed in the right object. Sincere faith in the wrong object has no more saving power, no more eternal significance than no faith at all. Now, both of those explanations are plausible for what Paul meant when he said, unless you have believed in vain. And essentially, they are both really teaching us the same thing. Faith in the gospel is essential. It is necessary for salvation. And it's always necessary. It's, it's necessary at the beginning to be saved. 
It is necessary in the process of being sanctified. It is necessary at the end for when Jesus returns for us to go to be with Him. We must still believe the gospel. And both leave us with the same conclusion. A person who doesn't believe the gospel is not saved. This is true whether they have never made a profession of faith in Jesus. And this is true whether at one point in the past they made a profession of faith in Jesus, but now they no longer believe the gospel. Both people are equally lost. One must believe the gospel to be saved. That's why it's important to stand in the gospel. We must stand in the gospel to be saved through the gospel. When someone drifts away from the gospel, they drift away from salvation to damnation. If we, as proclaimers of the gospel, drift from the gospel, we lead people astray. So our main thought is, we must stand in the gospel to faithfully proclaim the gospel. I'm trying to, to gear these messages, these lessons toward Us as mature believers. I don't believe those who come out in the middle of January on a cold Wednesday night are probably in much chance of falling away from the faith. However, it is possible for us to either unintentionally or because of fear to drift away in our proclamation of the gospel. So as proclaimers of the gospel... We must stand in the gospel to faithfully proclaim the gospel. There's three ways we have to stand in the gospel. We're going to look at at one tonight, and then we'll look at, I don't know how we'll do the others, maybe do one each week. But the way to stand in the gospel for tonight is refuse to take away from the gospel. And this is ultimately liberalism. To stand in the gospel, refuse to take away from the gospel. One of the ways people tend to drift from the gospel is through liberalism. Theological liberalism is a theology, a theological attempt to incorporate modern thinking, modern developments into the Christian faith. Liberal theologians tend to believe it is their task to make Christianity more palatable to modern man. In a lot of ways, the liberal theologian believes it is their Goal, their job, their mission to rescue Christianity by removing elements that seem most offensive at the time. So that's part of the thing at the time, because what is offensive, what is unacceptable, it may alter as time goes on. In one era, the doctrine of sin may be unacceptable. In another era, it may be the idea of miracles. In another era, it may be the virgin birth. It may be substitutionary atonement. Or in our day, often it's biblical sexual ethics. But the theme and the idea is always the same. In order to make Christianity believable, acceptable by the masses, certain doctrines, certain truths must be altered or altogether Abandoned. Now, the problem with liberal theologians isn't that they sit in ivory towers and they wax eloquently about liberalism. If that was all they did, they would not be much of a problem for us. Because 
we probably couldn't name a liberal theologian. There's probably not 12 people in Diamond, and that would be a big number, who could name a liberal theologian. But for those of us who live in small town America, who are in the trenches trying to reach people for Jesus, the actual liberal theologian isn't the bigger problem. Because nobody knows who they are. The danger and the problem of liberal theologians is they influence people. And there are two types of people that they influence that make them so dangerous. And one is pastors and teachers and church leaders. But most, if not all, liberal theologians are professors in colleges. Particularly Bible colleges and seminaries. Now, they, they aren't all in colleges and seminaries, but many of them are. And not every Bible college and seminary has liberals in them, but a lot do. And this gives them access to future pastors, to future leaders in churches. But not only do they have access to them, they have authority over them. These professors now, these future pastors, have to come to those classes and read the books that they assign and give the answers that they want. More than one young person went off to Bible college or to seminary full of faith and love for Jesus has left without any real faith in the Bible and has drifted away from the gospel. And then they go to churches and they begin to propagate the errors they learned from their liberal professors. And they cause them, cause others and churches to drift from the gospel. It's one. The other is what I would call the cool people. Right? Social media is filled with really nice, really popular, really cool people who call themselves Christians. People like Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Held Evans, Rob Bell, and many more have enormous followings on social media. They write books that are wildly popular among Christian in Christian circles. They become almost instant bestsellers. The tweets and the pate and the stuff that they send out goes all over the world. And these people either cast doubt on or outright deny fundamental elements of the gospel. These cool people have been influenced by liberal theologians and they have drifted from the gospel. Then through their social media influence, through their books, they cause other people to drift from the gospel. And there are a lot of ways to identify theological liberalism. But the most important has to do with what they say about Jesus. Since Jesus is the gospel, the main way liberalism drifts from the gospel is an attempt to redefine Jesus or reduce certain aspects of his character and nature. So there are four main aspects about Jesus. Liberal theologians try to remove or redefine as they drift from the gospel. They're familiar. We've talked about them before. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to sh we're going to talk about them. And I want to explain why they're gospel essentials that can't be drifted from. 
Right? So the first, Jesus is God. Of course, this is a, a big thing. This is a supremely important idea. Jesus is not just a, a good teacher. He was not just a good man. He is God. Now, it is very common in our day for liberal scholars to try to redefine this and say Jesus never claimed to be God. This is the biggest thing. Jesus never claimed God in the way we as conservative evangelicals say He is. And yet, a clear study of Scripture shows Jesus not only claimed to be God, but those who heard Him understood that's exactly what He was saying. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Now, that is a big statement. He, I and my Father, and He was calling God His Father, are one. Now, that's a clear statement, but there is a clear response to this statement. It is part of why it's so important. The Jews took up stones to stone Him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him. For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. Because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. See, when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, he was claiming to be God. And those who didn't like him understood that's what he was saying, and they charged him with blasphemy and were going to stone him. Now, that's just one example among many. And here's why this matters. We looked at this passage last week. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, the Greek word, Translated as Lord has several meanings, several important meanings for the original hearers. But the most important for us tonight is in the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. That was the that was the Greek word used for the name of God. Paul, as a Pharisee, as an Old Testament scholar in his own right understood that and used that term intentionally. Right? It wasn't just a word. He wasn't just saying Jesus is someone to be respected. He was using the Old Testament name for God and he knew his Greek and here his Hebrew readers would understand that. So when the early church used the phrase Jesus is Lord, they were acknowledging Jesus was who He claimed to be. He and His Father are one. They understood what Jesus was saying. He is God. So we cannot reduce the Gospel by saying Jesus is anything other than God. Because confessing Jesus as Lord is a part of responding to the Gospel in order to be saved. So there is no salvation for someone who does not confess Jesus is Lord. So it cannot be minimized. It cannot be redefined. He cannot be reduced in that way. But Jesus is God, but Jesus is also God in the flesh. <clears throat> Just as we know we 
We must know Jesus is God. We also have to know Jesus came to earth and became a man. Right? He was 100% God. He was 100% man. He was God in the flesh. And if we ever seek to, to downplay His deity, to emphasize His humanity, we, we make Him less than He is. And if we ever seek to downplay His humanity, to emphasize His deity, we make Him less than He is. That He wasn't 50% God, 50% man. He was 100% God, 100% man. This is the miracle of the Incarnation. Now, it's easy enough to say, well, how is important is this really? As long as we say, if I say Jesus is God, why does it matter if I also agree that Jesus is man? Well, look at what the Bible says. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And then a few verses later he says, Whoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ hath both God, or hath both the Father and the Son. Now, this is important because those that deny the full humanity of Jesus, they are deceivers and they are anti-Christ. They are actually opposed to Christ. That's a huge, huge statement to be made. It's not just that they're trying to redefine and make it more palatable. They are actually in opposition to Jesus Himself. And there is no fellowship with God or with His Son if we are not in the doctrine of Christ. To depart from the doctrine of Jesus being God in the flesh, it is to depart from the faith. To say Jesus, or to anyone who teaches Jesus anything but God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, has drifted from the gospel. Now, I'll be honest. Liberal theologians are not as quick to deny the humanity of Jesus. But it does happen. Right? For one reason or another. And so anyone who is saying Jesus is not God in the flesh, they have drifted from the gospel. But Jesus is not only God and God in the flesh, Jesus died for our sins. His death was the death of the martyr. Wasn't a substitution. He was a substitutionary sacrifice. Now we see that in 1 Corinthians 15 through. That's actually a part of our main passage. How Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Now this is a a massive gospel issue for our day for two reasons. First, why did Jesus die? It, it is not uncommon for liberal theologians and the liberal pastors who are influenced by them and the liberal social media influencers to minimize the severity of sin. There is very much a push in our day from the liberal theologians to minimize sin, to accept sin, to redefine sin. Right? In order to affirm sin, they have to redefine why Jesus died. Jesus died as an example. 
some will say. Jesus died to demonstrate love, others will say. Jesus died because of injustice in the world, others will say. Jesus died just not for sin. Because it becomes really hard to minimize sin when sin killed the Savior. It is really hard to affirm sin when sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus died for sin. The second reason this is so important for us is what did Jesus' death accomplish? What is different because Jesus died? Did He die just to provide an example? Give your life in service to others. That's a common refrain from liberals. Did He die just to to move us to compassion? Quit being a Pharisee and just love people like Jesus did. That's a very common refrain from our liberal theologians. Did He die to turn us into social justice warriors? Fight injustice even if it costs you your life. Oh man, that's super popular among the liberal theologians, particularly among the social media influencers right now. Or did Jesus' death accomplish something more? Jesus' death took the punishment for our sins. Jesus' death satisfied God's righteousness and God's justice. Since Jesus without sin Himself, His righteousness can be imparted to us. This satisfies God's holiness and provides us with access to Him and allows us to be forgiven for our sins and receive eternal life. And this is only through Jesus. The, The apostles understood this. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now liberal theologians love Jesus, they say. Liberal theologians choose Jesus, they say. But make no mistake, liberal theologians are not convinced salvation is only found in Jesus. Jesus is their choice, but your choice Maybe just as grand, just as okay. But God offers salvation and eternal life only through Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. Jesus alone saves because Jesus alone has dealt with sin. And if Jesus alone has dealt with sin, then in order to say there is salvation in any other name, we have to minimize, affirm, or redefine sin. Anyone who doesn't teach Jesus died on the cross for our sins has drifted from the gospel. And then finally, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead. 
Again, this is a part of our main text in verse 4. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. It is not uncommon for liberal theologians to deny the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus for a lot of reasons. This is a, a massively supernatural event, right? I mean, we are, we are saying, not only did He die for sin, right? So somehow His death supernaturally paid the penalty for everybody's sin, but then He rose from the dead after such a horrific death. It's a supernatural thing. It can't be explained by any natural means. Right? To say Jesus actually died and actually rose from the dead, there's no natural explanation for that. And it absolutely takes faith to believe it. We have to believe the testimony of Scripture, for that's what it teaches us. And the idea of Jesus literally, physically rising from the dead, it doesn't fit in the confines of our enlightened age right I mean we're just we're just too smart to believe somebody could rise from the dead that that's not possible I have you ever seen anyone rise from the dead never to die again no neither have I it can't be real those are stories and myths and legends no he didn't really rise from the dead and if Jesus really did die for our sins, and He really, literally, physically rose from the dead, all the rest of that has to be true. For only God could rise from the dead. Only God in the flesh could die. And His death testified, or His resurrection testified His death was for sins. Man, if He's all of those things, He can make demands on my life. And those demands on modern autonomous humanity, no, no one has any rights to make any demands on my life. I live by my truth. And no one can tell me what's right or what's wrong, how to live my life. And so the resurrection must be minimized. Now, we don't have a lot of time to look at it, but just quickly look at verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say among you there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom He raised not up if it so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then Christ, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain and ye are yet in your sins. Then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead, from the first fruits of them that slept. Right, so here, here's just a quick summary of this passage. If Christ is not risen, then everything we're doing here tonight is a waste of time. 
If Christ is not risen, our, our faith is a waste of time. Verse 14. If Christ is not risen, in verse 15, everybody who testified of seeing the risen Christ is a liar. Now, here's where that becomes an issue. Where are the testimonies of those who saw the risen Christ contained? In our New Testaments. So if Christ is not risen, our Bibles are useless. Because we said, he said, we said that God raised up Christ whom he raised not if the dead not rise. If Christ isn't risen, we're still in our sins, according to verse 17. There's no forgiveness. There's no salvation. There's no eternal life. If Christ isn't risen, then those who died in Christ have perished. They have died and gone to hell. And that's all that awaits us. And so we are of all men most miserable because we are deceived. We are wasting our lives. We are believing a lie. We are headed to hell thinking we're fine. Pity us above all others. The world without a risen Christ is not a happy, hopeful place. But Christ is risen in verse 20. And he lives forevermore. The resurrection of Christ is an absolutely essential part of the gospel. And any attempt to remove it, to minimize it, Redefine it, it is a drift from the gospel. If we are going to faithfully proclaim the gospel, we must stand in the gospel. For us, standing in the gospel, it means we faithfully believe it unto the end. And it also means we do not waffle on these truths. It doesn't matter how unacceptable it is. Doesn't matter how foolish it seems. We declare these, we preach these, we believe these, we tell these, we stand for these, we die for these. That's what it means to stand in the gospel. And in our day, in our day of theological liberalism run rampant, the world needs us. The world does not need anyone else to try to fix Christianity. The world does not need anyone else to try to redefine the gospel. The world needs people who are bold in Christ, strong in the Lord, and will say, this is the gospel. It's your choice whether to receive it or reject it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight.